0: Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 29th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for being here. This evening, I'm going to present part 21 of our commentary on the Wisdom of Solomon, and this is titled The Adulation of Men. If you can't guess, then Solomon is still talking about idolatry throughout chapter 14 and different types of idolatry. So here we are, and we might be repeating ourselves a little bit, but we have to handle the material. I try to keep it as fresh as I possibly can. ostensibly. The first sin in the Garden of Eden was caused by the admiration of a man. As we read in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that hold of his side do find it. Today, most supposed Christians continue to adore or worship men, many of whom are devils. Through professional sports, entertainment, and other media, they may imagine that they are only being entertained, but they are actually also engaged in adoring and idolizing their entertainers. Then they adapt themselves to the moral, religious, and political values of those same entertainers because they want to be like them. But the result is that they are no better than, they are no better off than the sinners who had submitted themselves to the ancient priests of Baal. And, according to Tertullian and other ancient authorities, the people had even worshipped the genitals of their priests. That may be graphic, but that is the truth of antiquity, and it is an underlying truth in the allure of Hollywood. In a different manner, adherents to Roman Catholicism, or Eastern Orthodoxy, have also always worshipped men by bowing themselves before icons and making prayers to presumed saints. But in reality, if you can worship dead men, what is it to worship men who are living? The churches call it veneration rather than worship, and they call the dead saints intercessors rather than gods. But it is all the same that to bow or kneel before a dead effigy and beg some favor is to worship something dead, something that cannot even help itself. That is the core of what Solomon describes here as the beginning of idolatry. Solomon had described a man who set up an image for display and provided for it that it might not fall, knowing that it was unable to help itself, for it is an image and has need of help. Then we read in the closing verses of Wisdom chapter 13, For health he calls upon that which is weak, for life prays to that which is dead, for aid Humbly beseeches that which has least means to help. And for a good journey, he asks of that which cannot set a foot forward. And for gaining and getting, and for good success of his hands, asks ability to do of him, meaning the image, that is most unable to do anything. Men, living or dead. Also have need of help, and only God can help them, even if Yahweh God chooses to do so through a man, He is the author of all assistance. So in Hebrews chapter four, Paul of Tarsus beckoned his kinsmen, saying, "Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession." For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities like those same dead idols, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Only God can help us. <clears throat> A tract on one prominent Roman Catholic website goes to great lengths to, to justify the superstitious act of praying to dead saints. Saints, I put that in parentheses, or I'm sorry, in quotation marks in the written version of this presentation. Because it's the church that calls these saints saints. And that just may not be the case. That church turns squat monsters into saints. But they're not saints in the eyes of Yahweh our God. This Roman Catholic article on this website, which goes to great lengths to justify this superstitious act of praying to dead saints, cites a reference to the prayers of the saints in Revelation chapter 5 as justification. That citation is based upon another presumption, as the Catholics imagine that the saints mentioned there in that passage are dead and in heaven, and that is certainly not the case. Paul of Tarsus used the word saints consistently throughout his epistles to describe Christians who were living in his own time. Common Christians, whom he often addressed as saints in his epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see that those saints were men who had problems just as we do, and could not even sort out their own matters. So Paul chastised them by asking, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, the common Christians of the Christian Assembly in Corinth, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He wasn't talking to dead people in heaven when he said those things. He wasn't talking to special people who performed miracles and were without sin or did some other great thing or or people who who touched statues and tears of blood welled up out of their eyes and crazy superstitious things like that. He was talking to common Christians. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul advised Christians to pray for the saints, but not to the saints. And by saints, he was once again Referring to Christians in general, not to anybody special, not to anybody who was designated a saint by some pope. Paul wouldn't have known the first thing about a pope. He would have rejected the idea. Paul advised Christians to pray for saints, not to them speaking to those men who had sanctified themselves in Christ by separating themselves from the sins of the world, which is what's expected of Christians. Then in Revelation chapter 8 we read, And the smoke of the incense, which came up with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand, where it is evident that those prayers emanate From living saints, not from the dead saints who are already with God. Or dead saints who are in the lake of fire because they were squat monsters and the Pope was wrong. Neither should men worship angels. And if we shouldn't worship angels, we sure as hell shouldn't worship men. Paul condemned the worshiping of angels in Colossians chapter 2. Later, in Revelation chapter 22, John described himself as having worshipped an angel, and he wrote, And I, John, saw these things, and heard them, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then he said to me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. So John fell before an angel, which was considered an act of worship, and the angel told him to get up and worship God. The word translated as worship in that passage of the Revelation is proskuneo which Liddell and Scott primarily define as to make obeisance to the gods or their images, fall down and worship, especially in the oriental fashion of prostrating oneself before kings and superiors, as we see in the Revelation, and that's the word that is used. Proskuneo comes from a couple of short words. The verb kuneo means to kiss, but the ultimate root of the word is kuan, which is a dog. So the theological dictionary of the New Testament says that the word comes from the preposition pros and a probable derivative of kuan, meaning to kiss, like a dog licking his master's hand. Now, there's another profane word taken from the same word, "cuneo," which is to kiss like a dog, and I won't repeat it here. There is another word for kiss in the New Testament, philema, which describes a brotherly act and does not have the same connotation. So the Greeks had two different words for kiss and one of them was rather profane and the other one was more civil and brotherly and actually expressed um, love for one's kindred. To kneel before some object or before some man and acknowledge it as superior or to make supplications before it is an act of worship. And if one wants to deny that, He is only deceiving himself, and in reality, he is doing no better than a dog. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Yahshua Christ, who is also Yahweh God incarnate. In that same article titled, Praying to the Saints, which is found on that same Roman Catholic website, justified it justified prayers to dead saints in spite of Paul's words where it says, but that role as mediator is not compromised in the least by the fact that others intercede for us, speaking of Christ. Furthermore, Christ is a unique mediator And this is just a lie. Christ is a unique mediator between God and man because he is the mediator of the new covenant. And they cite Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 and Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. And they say, just as Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. And they cite Galatians chapter 3. But this is dishonest. This citation, this quote, this statement by this Catholic website is dishonest in several ways. First, if other men pray for us, that does not necessarily have anything to do with us. So, of course, it cannot interfere between us and Christ. Second, Paul did not say that the role of Christ as a mediator was limited to the covenant itself, and the church is therefore adding their own vain ideas. To Paul's words. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul wrote, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator, period, one mediator, Period. One mediator between God and men, the man Yahshua Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So the Catholic Church lied. They selected one passage or two where Paul mentioned a mediator in relation to the new covenant and tried to limit the role of Christ himself to that particular aspect where Paul did not, and the Roman Catholic Church is built on lies. The Apostle John further clarified the role of Christ as mediator, where in agreement with Paul, he wrote in chapter 2 of his first epistle, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father." Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. There is no other mediator, and there is no other advocate. And therefore, whether we pray for ourselves or for one another, we pray to Christ. But we should never pray to one another, as that is idolatry. It is a concept which is found nowhere in scripture that we should pray to men or to the dead as if the dead could possibly save the living. That is the adulation of men. These priests, they sell these false concepts so that they could squeeze themselves in between men and God as if they are some sort of Authorities, or as if they have some sort of special relationship with God apart from Jesus or Yahshua Christ, that men don't have, and that's simply a lie. They're simply looking out for their own bellies. As long as we believe that men can save us. We will forever be oppressed by men and that is a punishment from God. The sin of the ancient children of Israel which ensured that they were suffer that they would suffer for so long under the rule of tyrants was to reject Yahweh their God as king and to demand an earthly king. As it is described in 1st Samuel chapter 8. But only Christ can save us as only he has overcome the power of death. So why should we ever pray to men? Then in Revelation chapter 13, Yahshua Christ had described himself as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So evidently, having foreseen that the sons of Adam would take to worshiping to men, and that they would want to be ruled over by men, Yahweh gave men a man to worship, which is Yahweh God himself in the form of a man, Yahshua Christ, and ultimately he alone shall be their king. On another note, and there are some things I have to talk about that are peripheral issues, but they are still important, and I believe I should talk about them in a timely fashion. On another night, there are on another note. There are fools who would claim that Christ, being a man, did not want to be worshipped. And I saw this argument just this week. Some of those fools were friends of ours until recently when they became Roman Catholic heretics. Imagine that. Imagine going from Christian identity and the truth of covenant theology and turning back to Roman Catholic concepts, and ideas. So, they cite passages such as those found in Matthew, where Christ had said, Why callest me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. They cite that passage in order to prove that somehow Christ did not want to be worshipped as God. But the revelation that Christ is God did not come to men until after the res- resurrection after the resurrection that revelation was made manifest and it was made manifest by the very fact of the revelation of the resurrection i'm sorry i can't even get the two words straight so we read later on in the closing passage of matthew in the very last verses where it is speaking of the disciples of Christ. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. So, after the resurrection, Christ was worshipped as God. However, the revelation that he was God came because he was resurrected. That's when the apostles understood everything he said, and knew that he was God, that he was that I am of Isaiah, where he himself had said in John chapter 8 that when you crucify the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. And they did, so they worshipped him, but some doubted. Even doubting Thomas Proclaim for Christ to be his Lord and his God after he saw the fact of the resurrection. But others still doubt. So they imagine to be God that they imagine, I'm sorry, they imagine for God to be as divided as they are, even into three separate persons, which is also idolatry. For the past several chapters of the Wisdom of Solomon, and we'll speak more on this subject later, for the past several chapters of the Wisdom of Solomon, the subject has been idolatry. And while discussing it, we have also tried to describe the different sorts of idolatry prevalent among men today. But here Solomon is speaking of the crudest form of idolatry which is the temptation for a man to worship the works of his own hands, therefore making a god in his own image. Now, today we do that same thing, but we don't make them out of wood. So, as Solomon had described it, such idolatry begins with the carving of a simple piece of otherwise useless wood in one's spare time, followed by the adoration of the work whereby it is set up as an idol. So where he made an example by describing a man who had done those things. Near the end of chapter 13, Solomon wrote that once he had done so, the man then maketh his prayer for his goods, for his wife and children, and is not ashamed to speak to that which has no life. Whereupon he begins the request of his idol help, Prosperity and success from, as Solomon said, from him that is most unable to do anything. Why would you ask a dead statue or a dead icon for anything when the dead statue or the dead icon can't do a damn thing for themselves? Now commencing in Wisdom chapter 14, Solomon continues to make examples of men and their relationship with their idols, but this time he uses a different man, one who had purchased such an idol. And starting with Wisdom chapter 14, verse 1, of course, again, one preparing himself to sail and about to pass through the raging waves calls upon a piece of wood more rotten than the vessel that carries him. For verily, desire of gain devised that, and the workman built it by his skill. Now, here the word for workman is technetis, which is properly a workwoman, since it is Actually, a feminine form of technites, which is the word for craftsman or workman. But here it's technites, which is a feminine form. And we may have expected craftsman in this context, or at least according to the way it was translated in the King James Apocrypha. So the last clause of verse two would more properly be read and the work woman built it by her skill. (laughs) Referring to the workings of wisdom personified as a woman, Technetis does appear on two earlier occasions in wisdom in chapters 7 and 8. So a man would purchase an idol fashioned by a craftsman, or perhaps by a craftswoman, which is really nothing but a dead piece of wood. And he prays to it for safety as he plies the waves in a somewhat more useful piece of wood, which is the boat that carries him. While we already mentioned this in relation to Solomon's earlier warnings against idolatry in Wisdom chapter 13, here Solomon himself describes a phenomenon which explicitly evokes the account of the experience of Paul of Tarsus in in Ephesus, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 19, where Demetrius the silversmith tried to incite a persecution of the followers of Christ out of fear that he would lose his livelihood as a maker of idols if the new creed continued to win converts. So idols are crafted and sold for the benefit of the craftsman or the merchant, and not for the efficacy of the god or demon which the idol represents. But once they are purchased, they are worshipped by men. If you sell statues and icons of supposedly dead saints, you are going to find ways to claim their legitimacy and to promote their efficacy. If you purchase the same, you are going to find ways to believe in their legitimacy and efficacy. No man wants to be convicted of his own stupidity. From its inception in the 4th century after Christ, the Roman Catholic Church has been a maker or promoter of idols. However, they are manifold in nature. For example, we may read in the pages of Bede, an 8th century Roman Catholic writer in England, how the Romish popes would send relics, relics which were supposedly from the bodies of dead saints, to British churches, which had submitted to the authority of the pope, as a sort of reward for their obedience to him. So, at least in part, the popes increased their power through the allure of idolatry. And the churches then had relics which it could use to beguile the curious. There is no telling whether Rome ever exhausted its supply of what it claimed were the bones of the apostles and martyrs. It sent out so many bones to so many churches that some kike was probably carving up pigs in a back room. But while the church encourages the veneration of statues and other objects, it has also created idols out of its priests, popes, and whatever dead men or women which it determines for itself to be saints. The church has even made idols of Yahweh God himself in its so-called Trinity doctrine, claiming that various aspects of the one true God, are different persons when in fact they are only manifestations of one person or entity. It is not even fitting to consider God to be a person, as that alone makes the invisible God into the likeness of a man. The same thing for which Paul had criticized the Romans. Rather than person, in Hebrews chapter 1, where the King James Version reads, speaking of Christ, who being the brightness of his glory, the brightness of the glory of God, and the express image of his person, where substance would have been a better word, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself, by himself, purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul had used a word that means substance, and Christ is the image of the substance of God. He is not the image of his own substance. That word for image is actually character. It is not a mere reflection. Yahshua Christ the man is the character of the substance of Yahweh God. And Yahweh God has no other character. So if we are fortunate enough to see Christ, as he himself told Philip, We shall be seeing the Father. When he sits at the right hand of the majesty in the heights, don't imagine that he's sitting next to somebody because God, the fullness of what is God, is invisible. Christ is his person. God, the invisible God, is not a person. Don't turn the Image of the invisible God into a man. He did that for us. And his name is Joshua Christ. Wow, why don't they get that? As he continues, Solomon professes that only God can keep a man safe in such situations as he describes. This man who bought this idol and is pl- plying the waves, relying on his idol for safe passage. And Solomon says, But thy providence, O Father, governs it. For thou hast made a way in the sea, and a safe path in the waves. The word for providence is pronoia, which is literally foreknowledge. Often in certain contexts, in English, the term is used as a secular synonym for God. The Latin term providentia is foresight or foreknowledge, from a verb providere, meaning to foresee. Here Solomon uses the term father as a title addressing God himself, so we may perceive that such use is not novel in the New Testament, and it is also a concept which even Moses understood. While Yahweh God had informed the children of Israel that ye are the children of Yahweh your God, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 14, in the Song of Moses, recorded later in that same book, in chapter 32, we read, and I'll read from verses 3 through, through 9, because I will publish the name of Yahweh, I'm using Yahweh and not the Lord because the Hebrew that lays behind those words, the Lord, the Hebrew is Yahweh. Because I will publish the name of Yahweh, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock, the same rock, which Paul later identified as Christ. So Yahweh God does not have schizophrenia. Moses did not have schizophrenia and project it onto God. He's not two people. He's not divided. He's one entity, and he is represented and made himself incarnate through one man, Yahshua Christ. They are both the rock because Christ is God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. Judgment a God of truth and without iniquity, just as Paul said of Christ. Just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot, the sin on them, their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite Yahweh, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father? Yahweh God, is the Father. Is not he thy Father that has bought thee? Has not he made thee and established thee? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. And ask thy Father, meaning once earthly Father, and he will show thee, thy elders, and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. So as early as Deuteronomy chapter 14, Yahweh is considered to be the father of his people Israel. That same former friend, who has departed from us to chase Roman Catholic Trinity idols, had also made the plain statement, and I will screenshot it, I will cut it out and put it with this podcast. He made the plain statement that Trinitarians do not consider Yahweh and Father interchangeable terms. And of course, <clears throat> when you think about it, they cannot because they attempt to divide God into three persons. So therefore, if the Father is Yahweh, then Yahweh cannot be all three persons, and Yahweh cannot be God, but only one of the persons, God, only one of the persons of God can be the Father. Claiming that Yahweh is not the Father, allows them to imagine that Yahweh is God, and the Father and Son are different so-called persons of God. The manure gets deeper as they proceed from there. But even this leaves them in a quandary. We have seen Moses explain that Yahweh is the Father in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And later in Scripture, we read in Isaiah chapter 64, But now, O Yahweh, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou art our potter. And we are the work of thine hand. The truth is that Yahweh God is not three persons, but one. And anything else is idolatry. Christ is his person. Christ is the character of of his substance, showing that thou can save. I'm sorry. Now Solomon continues to address God as the father, as we have already explained that from wisdom chapter nine, this entire discourse from chapter nine to the end of the book, the entire discourse is a prayer to God. So once again, he's addressing him in the second person. You. Showing that you can save from all danger. Yeah, though a man went to sea without art. The translation of these first four verses is good. In fact, most of the translation of this chapter is very good. But verse four we would render more literally. Showing that you are able to save from all things, even when a man may tread without art without art, without something that was crafted, without an idol. So in spite of whether a man travels with or without his idols, if he completes his journey, it is God who preserved him and certainly not his idols. And in that manner, Solomon completes the profession and he says in verse five, nevertheless, thou wouldest not that the works of thy wisdom should be idle. And, therefore, do men commit their lives to a small piece of wood, and passing through the rough sea in a weak vessel are saved? And, while this translation is fine, I will still offer my own. Perhaps the King James translators rendered scadia as a weak vessel, only because the word often referred to a crudely made vessel such as a raft or a float but was generally used to describe a boat or sometimes even a larger vessel later on in in greek from thucydides according to liddell and scott so in later greek it was used generally to describe a boat or a larger vessel I would translate this verse, verse 5 of Wisdom, chapter 14, to read, But you desire not that the works of your wisdom be idle. Therefore, even in the smallest piece of wood, men entrust their lives, and passing through the waves, they are brought safely in a boat. Yahweh God, the Father, whom Solomon is addressing, is here portrayed as having concern to preserve men, even if the men themselves had turned to idols, that his own wisdom not be rendered idol, I-D-L-E. However, the smallest piece of wood is not necessarily a reference to an idol, but rather to the vessel in which the men had entrusted their lives. These men, doing so, it is God who sees to it when their journey is successful. Now Solomon makes another reference to a weak vessel, using the same word, scadia. However, the scriptures reveal that the Ark of Noah was much more than a small raft or a boat, so evidently, or a float, I should say, so evidently the word is used allegorically. Verse 6. For in the old time also, when the proud giants perished... The hope of the world governed by thy hand escaped in a weak vessel, and left to all ages a seed of generation. So Solomon makes an allegory comparing the preservation of men in more recent and more common voyages to the preservation of man in the Ark of Noah. But where it says, when the proud giants perished, perhaps a twofold discussion is in order. First, the Greek word, the Greek word gigantes, does not necessarily imply that the Hebrew word Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6 strictly means giants. The gigantes of Greek mythology were not necessarily giants, as we use the term giant to refer to someone or something of extraordinary size. Rather, the word seems to be derived from the words gay for earth and genea for born. And therefore, gigas, or the plural gigantes, means earthborn ones. And that makes perfect sense. Because in Greek mythology, originally the gigantes or giants here are the earth-born generation of the Titans who were imagined to be the mythological children of heaven and earth or Uranus and Gahia. Therefore, they correspond precisely to the so-called giants who were born of women in Genesis chapter 6 the children of the Nephilim, or fallen ones, and the daughters of Adam. So a translator of wisdom would have naturally used such a term. But secondly, it is obvious that not all of the Nephilim themselves had died in the flood. Although ostensibly, whatever children of the daughters of Adam who were still with their mothers would have died in that manner. Many of the Nephilim, or later, they were called Zuzims, Anakim, Emim, and Rephaim, had clearly survived the flood, or we wouldn't hear those names after Genesis chapter 10, but they're in Genesis chapter 14, Genesis chapter 15, and later in Scripture. Numbers chapter 13. Now Solomon speaks concerning the ark itself, the vessel which had preserved Noah. And he says, For blessed is the wood whereby righteousness cometh. Notice that in verse 6, Solomon had described Noah and his family as the hope of the world, which, governed by the hand of the father, had escaped in a weak vessel, referring to the ark. If Noah and his seed were the hope of the world, then we must acknowledge the fact that the Nephilim and their offspring, and the descendants of Cain, and any other race outside of the sons of Noah, which are later counted as the enemies of Israel, are certainly not part of the world of the Scriptures. Blessed is the wood, verse 7 here, through which comes righteousness. Evidently, it took Noah and his sons 120 years to build the ark. As we interpret Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, where do we read? And Yahweh said, My spirit shall not always thrive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his day shall be 120 years. So even though it was only wood, it took 120 years for Noah to build it. And the result of the construction was only what is referred to as a scadia here, or a weak vessel. It was nevertheless a blessing. With this, we we may recall in Wisdom chapter 13, where a man had taken a tree and made useful vessels from it. But then, in his idol time, he took a piece of useless refuse from the same tree and carved an idol which he began to worship. So now Solomon recalls that same thing. But that which is made with hands is cursed. As well it, the wooden idol, as he that made it. He because he made it, and it because, being corruptible, It was called a god. The useless piece of wood, left over from the useful portion, which was used to make something good, may have been put to better use if it were not made into an idol. But because the useless wood was made into an idol, even though the wood itself had no choice in the matter, it was cursed as well as its maker. So for that, Solomon says in verse 9, For the ungodly and his ungodliness what the sinner produces. And this is why a man will never convince Yahweh to accept a bastard. For the ungodly and his ungodliness are both alike hateful unto God. For that which is made shall be punished together with him that made it. Even though Yahweh, in his mercy, would not have his wisdom remain idle, as Solomon had explained in verse 5, and therefore he may preserve even those men who in their endeavors had turned to idols, it is inevitable that in one way or another they will ultimately suffer punishment for their idolatry and the idols themselves shall be destroyed. If the idol is to be burned in the fire, its maker may well suffer that same fate, even if by fire he would only suffer in the torments of this world. Now, in that same manner, wisdom continues. Therefore, even upon the idols of the Gentiles and It should be nations, or perhaps in this context, heathens. Shall there be a visitation? Because in the creature of God, in the creation of God, they are become an abomination and stumbling blocks to the souls of men and a snare to the feet of the unwise. Of course, the Greek word for Gentiles here is a plural form of ethnos, or nations. And perhaps, but not necessarily speaking of the non-Israelite nations, it may have been translated as heathens, whether they were Adamic or not. That is because, ostensibly, None of the other nations, Adamic or otherwise, were given the laws or the knowledge of Yahweh. So they were uncultured in that sense, even regardless of the apparent level of civilization to which they had attained. As we read in First Chronicles chapter 16, For all the gods of the people are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Throughout the narrative of the Old Testament, the idols adopted by the children of Israel usually came from among the other nations, whether they were the golden calves of Egypt or the phallic symbols of the Baal temples of Mesopotamia and Canaan. But Abraham's own ancestors, who were Hebrews, were also idolaters. As we read in Joshua chapter 24, that your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. By flood, in that passage, the Euphrates River was meant. And Pedanaram was on the other side of the Euphrates River from the land of Canaan. So we see that idolatry was very old. And it must have befallen the sons of Noah, not long after the flood. The flood of Noah, not the river Euphrates. So Paul told the Athenians, as it is recorded in... Acts chapter 17, where he is alluding to Deuteronomy 32.8, in that very same portion of the Song of Moses wherein Yahweh God is first identified as Father in Scripture. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. Seeing he gives all to all life and breath and all things, and is made of one—I will scratch the word blood here, it doesn't belong in the original, and I'm quoting the King James Version—and has made of one all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, and that's a direct allusion to Deuteronomy 32.8. That they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So instead, all Adamic men, except Abraham, had gone off after idols. And the call of Abraham took him and his descendants out of that world of idolatry, at least as long as they themselves chose to follow Yahweh. Now, speaking of when those idols were first devised, Solomon says, For the devising of idols was the beginning of spiritual fornication, and the invention of them the corruption of life. But this is a lie. As the translators have introduced a grievous lie into the text, there is no word for spiritual in the text. And it should be clear that mere spiritual fornication, which is an artificial religious construct of the same modern churches that engage in idolatry, does not change the nature of the creation of God. To change the nature of the creation in a manner which corrupts it, a greater sin must be perpetrated. The verse should be translated. For the beginning of fornication is the invention of idols, and the discovery of them is the corruption of life. You start forming God in your own image. And before you know it, you're going to be sleeping with niggers. Just look at the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. So for those who find the idols devised by men, the end result is fornication and the corruption of life. Even if the adulation of men is not direct, it is still the adulation of the works of men. And when men believe that they can make gods in their own image, then in essence, the man himself is pretending to be a god. And such humanism always leads to corruption. As we had explained in part 19 of this commentary, which was titled Patterns of Idolatry, all of the ancient pagan religions, and especially Tao worship, were centered around fornication in the form of fertility rituals, which were basically marriages at the altar, the worship of genitals, temple prostitution of both boys and girls, and other depraved practices. Marriages at the altar originated in pagan temples. And in that context, marriage is the act of sexual intercourse, not an exchange of Christian marriage vows. We had spoken about the phallic worship and sexual degeneracy of bow worship, Bacchus, Aphrodite, and other pagan religious cults, contemporary to the time of Solomon and the Old Testament kingdom of Israel. So, what the churches claim was only spiritual fornication in the Old Testament was actually literal fornication, fornication which included race mixing. And in Hosea chapter 5, we see the result, where the word of Yahweh had spoken in reference to the northern kingdom of Israel and said, They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children, and now a month shall devour them with their portions. So in that manner is fornication the corruption of life, as Esau, being impious, was called a fornicator by Paul of Tarsus in Hebrews chapter 12, since he had taken his wives from among the women of the Canaanites. Now, since Yahweh did not create either idols or idolatry, Solomon says in verse 13, For neither were they from the beginning, neither shall they be forever. For by the vainglory of men they entered into the world, and therefore shall they come shortly to an end. And the last clause, where a verb is poorly translated. It would be better rendered, and for this reason, the abrupt end of them is planned. The word translated as vainglory in verse 13. Kenodoxia. According to Liddell and Scott, means liability to vain imagination, and then more simply, vanity or conceit. The same word appears in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where in the King James Version, Paul wrote, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, reminds me of some of the friends we used to have these past couple of weeks, who out of vanity and conceit went chasing after Roman Catholic heresies, and now they are no longer friends, because we actually believe our scriptures, and stand on our principles. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. As Solomon himself had explained in Ecclesiastes, without God all of the works of men are vanity. Now wisdom describes yet another reason Why a man may fashion an idol, in verse 15 of Wisdom, chapter 14. For a father afflicted with untimely mourning, when he has made an image of his child soon taken away, now honored him as a god, which was then a dead man, and delivered to those that were under him ceremonies and sacrifices. This sort of idol is hard. It's, at least it's hard for me. I have not really found one. This sort of idol is hard to locate in scripture or history, where it is easier to find dead ancestors who are worshipped, or child gods, child gods who grew to adulthood. But Solomon is clearly attributing the origin of at least some idols to bereaved fathers who would lament a lost son. I think Pete Peters did that once and idolized his own son. That's a sort of digression, a side note. That's a relic of Christian identity history. While we have seen parallels to this phenomenon in the modern world, as I have just mentioned, no doubt it also existed in antiquity. The phrase translated as ceremonies and sacrifices is in Greek, musteria, that's the word from which we get mysteries from, and teletas, and it literally means mysteries and rites, or mysteries and rituals. The religious cults, the Greek religious cults, kept many of its mysteries secret, and violators of those secrets were punished. For that reason, we do not have a lot of information about how a lot of these cults were begun because they were mysteries and they were kept secret. Now, as an example of that assertion, I will cite a passage from the ancient Greek historian Herodotus where he was giving some background information while describing a feud between the Agenetans and the Athenians. And he wrote in book five of his histories that anciently, and even down to the time when this took place, the feud, the Agenetans were in all things subject to the Epidorians, and had to cross over to Epidaurus for the trial of all suits in which they were engaged with one another. After this, however, the Egonetans built themselves ships and, growing proud, revolted from the Epidaurians. Having this, having thus come to be at enmity with them, the Agonetans, who were masters of the sea, ravaged Epidaurus and even carried off these very images of Dania and Oxesia. A-U-X-E-S-I-A, Auxesia, kind of. Difficult for me to pronounce. Which they set up in their own country, in the interior, at a place called Oya, about 20 furlongs from their city. This done, they fixed a worship for the images, which consisted in part of sacrifices, in part of female satyric choruses that's satyrs choruses the satyr being that sexually insatiable half man half goat creature from the outside outside areas of society so the rituals they fixed a worship for the images which consisted in part of sacrifices and in part of female satyrs' choruses, while at the same time they appointed certain men to furnish the choruses, ten for each goddess. These choruses did not abuse men, referring to sodomy, but only the women of the country, referring to rape. Holy orgies of a similar kind were in use also among the Epidarians, and likewise another sort of holy orgies whereof it is not lawful to speak, so who knows what the hell was going on there? This was a passage which i have I've known and had in my notes for quite some time ever since i first read Herodotus in 1999 but for some reason this is the first time i have cited it in my writing i cited it for two reasons first to show that the greeks kept and and the ancients in general in mesopotamia and other places as well kept the details of a lot of their rituals and evidently their holy orgies they kept them secret Their their religions were called mystery religions. They were mysteries because they were only known by initiates. And if the initiate had gone babbling to everybody about what was going on, he would be in a heap of trouble. He would probably get killed. Herodotus said it was unlawful for him to speak of these things. And he wasn't from Epidaria or Ahigena. He was from Halicarnassus, which was a Dorian city off of the coast in Anatolia in what we know as Turkey. Epidaurus was a city on the Argolid Peninsula in the Peloponnese. While Aegina, as I would pronounce it, or some people might say Aegina, and that's a name similar to the name of the Aegean Sea, but it's Aegina in our edition of Rawlinson's Herodotus. It was in, it was on an island off the northern coast of the peninsula, the Argolid Peninsula, so it was close by Epidaurus, just a short drive across the water. Damia and Augsesia were evidently goddesses of spring and growth. And here, once again, we see not only the literal fornication to which idolatry and the adulation of men inevitably lead. But we also see that certain rites were kept secret, and it is difficult to penetrate the true nature and origin of many sects of ancient paganism. But as Paul of Tarsus had warned in chapter 5 of his epistle to the Ephesians, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Those holy orgies that Herodotus couldn't even talk about. Wow. I'm glad he didn't talk about them. Not that I have virgin ears. Now Solomon describes how the adulation of men was perpetuated. I may have said perpetrated a minute ago. I wrote. Perpetuated, I'm sorry. Thus, verse 16, Thus in process of time, an ungodly custom, grown strong, was kept as a law. And Herodotus talked about things being unlawful for him to even speak of. And graven images were worshipped by the commandments of kings. There is no doubt that the kings of antiquity upheld the worship of idols, such as we see in Babylon, where even Daniel the prophet had suffered at the hands of the king for refusing to worship the idols of Babylon. Even earlier, when the kingdom of Israel had divided, Jeroboam 1 demanded that the people of the ten northern tribes depart from the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem, because he knew, as long as they went to Jerusalem in Judah, and worship Yahweh in the temple, that he could never control them. So he demanded that they worship the golden calves of Dan and Bethel, which he had set up along with an associated priesthood. He set that up as the state religion, so that he could force the people to worship the state religion, and he could control them. To ensure control over a people, Tyrants must also maintain control of their religion. That's why we have IRS 501c3. That's the only reason why we have it. This is also the adulation of men. As government becomes the god of the people, determining its religion for them. Often kings themselves were worshipped as the Egyptian pharaohs were considered to be both intercessors between the gods and men, does that sound familiar, and gods on earth. Like the Egyptians, Julius Caesar and later Roman emperors took for themselves the title of Pontifex Maximus, as they esteemed for themselves to be the bridge builder. That's what Pontifex means, bridge builder. And today you'll read in dictionaries and encyclopedias that nobody's really sure why the why the pope is called pontiff, and that's a lie. Whenever it's repeated, that's a lie. The pope today calls himself pontiff because he thinks he's the pontifex, the bridge builder between God and men. And the ancient Romans believed the emperors Julius Caesar had the title. Pontifex Maximus, the bridge builder, the chief bridge builder, the Maximus bridge builder between God and men, or the gods and men, to Caesar. Then from the time of Octavian, or Augustus Caesar, the Roman emperors fancied themselves as the son of God because the Roman Senate imagined that their dead fathers had become gods, even decreeing them to be gods and that led to the worship of the living emperors. Various emperor cults in Rome dedicated temples and religious rites to living emperors. Throughout the early portions of this commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, we had asserted that wisdom was certainly written by Solomon, even if it was translated into Greek by a much later hand. While the mainstream academics, like all of them, all assert that wisdom was written by some Hellenistic writer of the first century before Christ. But to add to the many arguments we have already presented, this explanation here of the development of idolatry here in wisdom is nothing like that of the typical Hellenistic writers, whether they be Judeans such as Philo of Alexandria, or pagan Greeks such as Apollodorus or Callimachus, who was an earlier Alexandrian. The earliest Greek poets insisted that their images fell from heaven, and neither did the wisdom of Solomon express that, nor would it accept that. But this is seen in the words ascribed by Luke in Acts chapter 19, to the town clerk of Ephesus, where we read, And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana? That's actually the Roman name. The Greek is actually Artemis. And of the image which fell down from Jupiter. And of course, I don't know why the King James followed the Roman names for these idols, but Diana is Artemis and Jupiter is actually Zeus in the Greek. It would be Jupiter in in Latin. So it should say Artemis and Zeus. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. So the Ephesians professed the belief, which Luke recorded, that their image fell down from heaven or from Zeus. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, everybody knew it. They're informing us that the whole world knew it. And the entire Greek world did. That's how they believed their idols came to be. But Solomon is not expressing that. So for this reason, because it is not Hellenistic, not at all Hellenistic, we would assert that its perception of the beginnings of idolatry must come from a much earlier time and certainly seems to have come from Solomon. So when we continue our commentary on chapter 14 of Wisdom, we will see Solomon himself make the transition from explaining the adulation of men, and how it was transformed into the idolatry of kings. Once man believes he can form God in his own image, the more powerful man can force the people to worship the God of his preference, or even to worship himself as a god. Once we believe we should worship men whom we may think are worthy, the inevitable result is that we will be forced to worship men who believe themselves to be more worthy. And I actually saw, and and this is from memory a few days ago, I saw this little news clip after Joe Biden was inaugurated, and it was the night of the inauguration. And this clown He's a clown, he's a newscaster, he's a news reporter, probably an anchorman, I don't remember his name. He actually said on television that the rays of light coming out emanating from the White House were Joe Biden's arms hugging Washington. Get the hell out of here. How is that any different than these damn Caesars that thought they were gods or these Egyptian pharaohs that thought they were gods and the sun on earth. It is no different that newscaster, whoever that clown was, had expressed the same sentiments as these ancient emperors who thought they were kings, just like the people of Tyre in the book of Acts in chapter 12 had worshiped Herod Agrippa I because he spoke so eloquently and his clothing was so shining. And Agrippa, he didn't deny it, and God struck him dead. I pray Joe Biden's eaten with worms. It might not happen, but wow, it would be cool. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. I will be here next week with Dr. Michael Hill.